Scripture reading today comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 4, verses 34 through 37. But at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven, and my sanity returned to me. And I praised the Most High and honored and glorified him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does what he wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can block his hand or say to him, What have you done? At that time my sanity returned to me, and my majesty and splendor returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and my nobles sought me out. I was reestablished over my kingdom, and even more greatness came to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and glorify the King of the heavens, because all his works are true and his ways are just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Davis, for reading. For the fall, we are in a series in the book of Daniel called Faithful in Exile. Daniel, who wrote the book, who the book is about, he lived through the hardest and darkest time in the story of Israel. In the 6th century BC, when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came and conquered Judah, he destroyed the temple, everything changed for Daniel and the Jewish people. Life as normal was gone. It was done. Daniel couldn't worship at the temple. It was destroyed. He was taken captive to Babylon. He was called to live. He was called to serve in a political environment that had so much pressure to fear or to compromise. In exile, Daniel had to wrestle with questions of faith in a way like he never had before. Just with that quick overview of life in exile for Daniel and the Jewish people, you can see the parallels to our experience now. It has profound connections and application for our lives, this book of Daniel, as we are living in a kind of exile ourselves, in a post-Christian, politically divisive and toxic, pandemically disrupted world where everything has changed and life as normal is gone. The hopeful truth about Daniel, though, as we've seen over the past four weeks, is that for Daniel, life in exile, what seemed like it could have crushed his faith, life in exile for Daniel formed his faith and character in a way that would not have happened had everything stayed normal for him. Daniel was written to give us that same hope that this can be true of our lives. How? How can life in exile form our faith and character and not break us? And if you're listening to this message and maybe you're exploring faith, you're exploring Christianity and investigating it. How can this time, this time we're living in, be a time for you to find faith? Daniel shows us how. The main message and the main theme of Daniel, which is also the main theme of the passage we'll look at today, gives us the core answer to that question. There are many other things we could say, and Daniel points out, but this gets to the core the answer is this, believing that God is in control and at work, even when it doesn't seem like it. 
When you're living through challenging times, trials, a pandemic, a political upheaval, there is a question that is at the core that's underneath all other questions. It's underneath our fears. It's underneath our anxieties. I believe it's also underneath most of our anger. The question is this, who's in charge? Who is in charge? Is the pandemic in charge? Are political leaders in charge? Are scientists in charge? Is no one in charge? Who's in charge? Am I in charge? What I want, my desires, my personal rights, or my fears? Who is in charge? Or is a good and wise and loving God still in control and at work? This is at the core of the core of the message of Daniel. This is the core question that's underneath all that we are struggling with and dealing with in our times. I don't know if you've ever uh, seen or taken apart a, a baseball to see what's inside of it. What's at the core of a baseball? I have a picture here. I remember when I was uh, a little boy, I loved baseball, played baseball, and we had one that, that just was coming apart. We took the, uh, the baseball apart, and we were so surprised that there was all this string inside, there was all these different things inside, but at the core of the core was this little cork. And so there's a cross-section of a baseball. There's so many things that are going on in our lives, in our world. Uh, there are so many things that we could talk about. There's so many things even that Daniel speaks to. But Daniel is a book that gets to that core. It says, at the core, there's a question that you need to be clear on. And it's the question, who is in charge? You need to be clear on it and you need to continually come back to it, which is why Daniel continually comes back to this question. Who is in charge? Who is the king? It's the focus of chapter 4 in Daniel. It's the title of my sermon today. The one in charge. We're going to look at this dream. There's a dream uh, that's behind all this in chapter 4. So we're going to look at the point of the dream, another dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. Uh, we're going to look at how Nebuchadnezzar actually got the point. How did he learn it and how do we learn it? And lastly, we're going to talk about what happens when we actually learn the point of the dream. So three points. Who's in charge? How do we learn who is in charge? And what happens when we really learn this? So first point, who is in charge? We just heard the conclusion to the story uh, in the scripture reading. Now let's get the full context. So Nebuchadnezzar, who was he? He was one of history's most powerful kings. He conquered and ruled a huge empire. It stretched uh, from Africa in Egypt to um, Iran all the way to Saudi Arabia, a huge area of land. It included Israel and his people. Now, this is the final Nebuchadnezzar story in Daniel. This is a conclusion to his story, and it's the last we hear of him. If there's one thing that God is trying to teach this mighty pagan king, it's who is in charge, and he's trying to get this through to him. We've seen for three and now four chapters. Chapter 4, 4, in verse 4, it says, um, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. And then he had another dream. His first dream, we looked at a number of weeks ago, probably came early in his reign, probably his first year. This dream came when he was at the height of his power, and he was at ease, and he was flourishing, and everything was going well. So if you have your Bible, I want you to open it. We're going to look, and we're going to summarize uh, verse 4 all the way 
to verse 27 as Nebuchadnezzar shares this dream and then as Daniel interprets it. You need to follow along because it gets pretty weird, this whole story. You won't believe me unless you see it. So let's follow along. God sends uh, Nebuchadnezzar another dream, and he's frightened and alarmed, he says in verse 5, just like in chapter 2 when he was so disturbed. And just like in chapter 2, his wise men cannot interpret. Maybe they will not interpret it because they know what they'll have to say to him. But Daniel can interpret it, and he does. What is the dream? Well, here it is. Dream, uh, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has, he says, uh, I saw this vision. Okay, Daniel, and in this vision, verse 10, in my mind, I was lying in bed. I saw this tree, this great flourishing tree. Everything found life in this tree. He describes that in 10 through 12. Then he says, as he was lying in his bed, he saw a watcher come, an, an angelic heavenly being come and say, cut down the tree, leave only a stump. And let his mind be changed, it says in verse 16. Let him be given the mind, not of a human, but of an animal for seven periods of time, which is a Hebrew idiom for the complete time. Until, it says, he acknowledges that the Most High is ruler, verse 17, over all human kingdoms. So there's a vision of a great tree. A watcher shows up and says, cut that tree down and leave just a stump. What does this mean? Well, verse 19 and following, Daniel explains, Nebuchadnezzar, the tree is you. You are mighty. You are flourishing. You're great and strong. But what the watcher, this angel says, applies to you. You will be cut down. You'll be driven away from people to live with wild animals. You'll feed on grass like a cow for seven periods of time, which is a figurative way of saying until you learn the lesson, until you acknowledge the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms and gives them to anyone he wants. So the symbol of a tree is a common ancient Near Eastern symbol that uh, stands for a king who rules over a flourishing and great kingdom. But in the dream, the tree is chopped down. Why? Verse 17 tells us, This is so that the living will know that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms, and he gives it to anyone he wants and sets the lowliest of people over it. Here's the point. It's to show Nebuchadnezzar and everyone else all living people who is in charge. That's the meaning of the dream. It was twofold. It was for Nebuchadnezzar, but it was also on behalf of, it says, all who are living, all who are living under Nebuchadnezzar's power. The key word in this whole story, in this whole chapter, is the word in the title that's used for God, Most High. No other chapter in the Old Testament uses this word as frequently. Seven times it appears. God is called the Most High. The meaning is twofold there. God is Most High. He's speaking to those who think they are in charge from a place of pride. God is saying, I am in charge, not you. He's saying that to Nebuchadnezzar. He's also saying through this dream, the message of the dream is to those who think that the people and the things that have power and influence over their lives are in charge of them, are ruling over them. God says, no, they are not. I am in charge. I am God most high. And this is essentially the same message as the dream in chapter 2, the dream of the great statue. God is in control. He is king. Why would God send him another dream with the same message? Why again? Well, Nebuchadnezzar clearly didn't get it. 
and neither did the readers of Daniel get it. They didn't get it to the core, so they needed to hear it again because it is so hard to believe. When you feel like you are in control, when you are in power, to admit you're not. And it is so hard to believe that God is in charge when you are living through exile. They needed to hear it again. Do you see how this addresses the core question of faith uh, for those who were in exile? The core question at the root of their fears and of their anxiety? They were thinking, it looks like Nebuchadnezzar, and it looks like Babylon is ruling over our lives, like they are most high. They have the upper hand. They are in charge. But God says they aren't. God is most high. He can reduce the mightiest ruler to a beast, crawling around eating grass. So he's saying, God is saying, don't be afraid to the exiles then of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. Don't live in anxiety as if your life is controlled and dependent upon the political powers that be on the cultural forces around you, on the changes and on the challenges that that you've experienced in exile, God says, and he's saying to us, I am most high. I am in charge. I am in control and at work, even when it doesn't seem like it. At the core, uh, friends, of so much of our anxiety, at the core, at the root of so much of our anger, is how we answer this question. Who is in charge? Now, I want to suggest a practice to you to get the answer that Daniel gives us into the core of our cores. The Apostles' Creed, the summary of Christian faith, begins with this. Many of you have it memorized. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That's the core of the core. Everything else is built around that, that there is a God who is almighty, who made all things. He is my Father. I want to suggest that you repeat that phrase to yourself when you're feeling angry, anxious, or fearful. That you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. He is in charge. If you prefer a shorter version than that, then you can just say the words, I believe God is in charge. You might need to say it out loud 20 times a day, 50 times a day, 100 times a day. This week, I found myself using that practice to remember when anxiety was rising up in my heart and various things. When I was reaching boiling point in anger or frustration to remember God is in charge. This is the meaning of the dream. God is in charge. Did Nebuchadnezzar learn it? And how do we learn it? This is my second point. How do we learn who's in charge? You know, the, the dream, the interpretation of the dream is somewhat obvious, isn't it? So it's like, why didn't these wise men uh, get it? It seems, as we're reading it, like, okay, tree chopped down, seems like that's Nebuchadnezzar. Did Nebuchadnezzar really not understand it? Or did he really just want not, not want to know? He didn't want to admit what he knew the dream was telling him. I think that's the answer. He was too prideful to see, to admit that he wasn't in charge. He couldn't do it. So what had to happen for him to learn this? He had to get chopped down. He had to get humbled, and 99.9% of the time, that is the way that we learn this lesson. It takes a humbling for us to let go of our pride, a chopping down of our pride. 
Now this dream, this whole story gives us a, a definition of pride. There are many ways that we could define what is human pride. C.S. Lewis calls pride the anti-God state of mind. In the scriptures, it is really the core of the core of a life of sin, a life of separation from God. Uh, pride is when we see ourselves as above others and as in control of our lives, when we say, I am most high and I am in charge. And we look at verses 28 through 33. Now look at that with me. So, 12 months later, a whole year passes by from the dream and Daniel giving the interpretation of the dream. It says, at the end of 12 months, as Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, he said, is not this Babylon the great that I have built to be a royal residence, to be my vast power and for my majestic glory? Now, I have a quick picture, a slide, so you can just maybe picture this in your mind. Nebuchadnezzar did rule over an incredibly impressive kingdom. This is actually a section of the wall that he built from Babylon. It's in a museum in Germany. This is what it looked like. He was standing up on the roof of one of these towers and looking over all that he had accomplished. And he said, I, my, my. <laughs> it's a picture of pride. He didn't learn the message of the dream. So in verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, it says, just finishing the sentence, a voice came from heaven, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared that the kingdom has departed from you. It's time for the dream to come true. You are getting chopped down. You had a year, but you didn't learn. So Nebuchadnezzar was driven away from people. He was living out in the wilderness, eating grass like a beast. Now, questions about this. Is this some kind of mental psychological disorder? Well, there are known disorders that, that are like this. Is this something that we have uh, other records of in history? Well, not, not quite, but there actually are hints of this in ancient history. But that's not the point. The point is that this is God's humbling of a man centered in pride. If you can imagine this, if you're just thinking about what happened here, it says Nebuchadnezzar went out. He was like a beast. His, his hair grew like eagle's feathers. His nails grew long. It's, this is a picture. If you can imagine this disturbing picture of the dehumanizing nature of pride. It's what happens to a person who tells God, I'm in charge. God let that play out in Nebuchadnezzar's life. I have this really freaky picture for you. Warning, this might give you nightmares if you keep this in your mind, but this is a picture painted by William Blake of this chapter of when Nebuchadnezzar was driven out on his hands and knees, living like a beast. What does all this teach us about how we learn who is in charge? You know, Nebuchadnezzar had a chance, we see. A whole year, Daniel said, this is where you're headed because of your pride. He was being prophetic here, not, not necessarily just predictive. He said, this is God's truth. This is your chance. What was Daniel's advice? He said, Nebuchadnezzar, this dream is God's grace to you. You don't have to get chopped down. If you get down now and acknowledge that God is most high, if you humble yourself before God now. But in verse, uh, in verse 27, that's what Daniel says. He says, separate yourselves from, from your sin. Humble yourselves. But did Nebuchadnezzar learn from the dream and the amazing 
you know, gentle yet truthful approach that Daniel took. I mean, God couldn't have been any clearer or more personal by sending him this dream. Daniel couldn't have been more effective. He couldn't have done it any better than he did. But did Nebuchadnezzar learn? No. He was given a chance, and often we are too. I want you to listen to this, friends. Often we are too. Often we're given a chance, we're given a picture, a picture of where our pride will lead us if we cling to it. Perhaps we hear about someone following the same road that we are currently on. We hear about where it led them to disaster or pain. Perhaps a friend lovingly uh, confronts us about some area of our pride, or we see it as a result of our conflict with the people closest to us. Perhaps the Spirit of God is impressing upon our hearts. Acknowledge me as the Most High. I'm in charge. Separate from your sins, your injustice, your complicity to injustice, and show mercy to the needy. God is so merciful, do you see? He did this for Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, a wicked, evil ruler. This is scandalous for the Jewish people to read that. The entire story of the Bible is that God does this for his people Israel. He does this for all of us. And this might be the most humbling thing of all. The great lengths that we go to, especially when we are comfortable and life is good and easy, the great lengths we go to to avoid humility. Even when we know and intellectually agree and say humility is a good thing, pride is a bad thing, we continue to try and stay in charge and in control of our lives. But the most hopeful thing about this passage is the great lengths God will go to to humble us. Sometimes it feels like a chopping down. When God humbles us, and this might be happening to you right now, we need to remember, God, when he humbles us, he is not hating us. Feels like that. He is loving us. It's the only way we learn who's in charge. One commentator said, he said it like this, the worst thing that can happen to us is for God to leave us comfortable and at ease in our pride. If that is true, the worst thing that can happen to us is to be left in our pride. What is the best thing that can happen to us? The best thing that can happen to us is whatever it takes for us to realize God is in charge, for that to get to the core of our cores. How did Nebuchadnezzar learn this? You know, notice where he was. We saw the picture of the wall. He was high up, high up above everyone on his roof, looking down at everybody. It's a picture of pride. Where did he learn that he was not in charge? He was down on the ground, crawling in the grass, looking down. Well, he couldn't look down on anyone anymore. He was brought low. Then in verse 34, we see how he finally learned. It says in verse 34, I looked up to heaven and my sanity was restored. Humility in the Bible, listen to this, friends, is really important, is not found in looking down on ourselves. This is another form of self-obsession. True humility is found by looking up to heaven. I have a quote from C.S. Lewis. He says it so well. It's been a long time since I've quoted C.S. Lewis, so I'm overdue, but listen to this quote. Read along with me. In God, you come up against something which in every respect is immeasurably superior to yourself, unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison. You do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. 
A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Lewis goes on and says, that raises a terrible question. How is it that people who are quite obviously eaten up with pride can say they believe in God and appear to themselves very religious? I am afraid it means they are worshiping an imaginary God. I think Lewis is right on, right on to the heart and the meaning of this text. How do we know we are worshiping the real God? Whether we're filled with pride or humility at the core. It's not just enough to believe in God, to say we believe in God. It's not enough to be religious, to be very religious. That actually just feeds our pride. We use it to look down on other people who are not as religious as us, who don't believe what we do. We need something that gets us to look up to God, look up to God without looking down on others. Friends, that is what the gospel does. The message at the heart of the Bible. The gospel is this, that the Most High King humbled himself to save us. He didn't just humble himself to become a man, to come down and walk on the earth and to walk along the grass with us. God Most High, the one who created all things, the maker of heaven and earth, went down further than that. We already read it in Philippians 2, but we need to hear it again. The gospel. Jesus, who existing in the form of God, Philippians 2, 6, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited or grasped or held onto. Instead, God Most High emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. That is shocking in and of itself. But it goes on. When he had become a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Far more shocking and unbelievable than a man becoming a beast is God becoming a man to die. This is the only way that we could be saved. This is our only hope. And that empties us of all pride. Christianity says everything, anything we do, in the words of this passage, verse 35, is counted as nothing in the greatest of all our glory, in all that we can do, in all that we can accomplish. We are all still broken sinners without hope, except for the grace of God. The only way we are not chopped down is if Jesus was for us in our place. If he bore our sins in his body on the tree for us. This is the end of all pride, friends. When we get it to the core, we cannot look down on anyone because we, no matter who it is, will say, I am just as in need of Jesus as they are. And we cannot look down on ourselves because God loves us so much that he would humble himself beyond all of our imagination to bring us back to himself. The Most High would humble himself for us so we can look up, not in fear, but in gratitude and trust and wonder. That is how we learn 
the message of this text that God is in charge. What happens when we learn this? Third point. It is a question. Commentators disagree on this question. Did Nebuchadnezzar really learn this lesson about who's in charge? You know, archaeologists have actually found inscriptions on buildings. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar left all kinds of inscriptions about his rule and reign. And there's one that they found where he claimed to be the most just and meek and humble ruler ever. <laughs> Let me show you. This is an example, uh, not of where he said that. I couldn't find that one. But this is one of the building inscriptions uh, from, from Babylon that has been found. If you have inscribed your humility <laughs> on a building, is that really humility? <laughs> there's a little too much here that Nebuchadnezzar says in the, in the text that we read about my majesty, my kingdom, and my greatness. Here's what he says. When my sanity returned to me, my majesty and my splendor returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. A little too much my, my, my going on for us to conclude that Nebuchadnezzar really got it, that God is in charge. But what he says at the end of chapter 4 is spot on. He says, for God, all his works are true and his ways are just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. What happens, friends, when we really learn that when it gets to the core? Three things We'll close with these three things. First, it addresses our vanity. <laughs> Here Nebuchadnezzar is saying, I've learned, I've learned the lesson, but it's about me, my, my kingdom, my glory. When we really learn this, we are no longer the center of our world. Our focus is on God and others and not on ourselves. And this can be so freeing. The self-forgetfulness of humility, of remembering God is in charge. Martin Luther said, true humility does not know that it is humble. If it did, it would be proud from the contemplation of so fine a virtue. Humility makes us self-forgetful, or it's not all about us. Secondly, it's the end of our vanity, but it is also the key to our sanity. If there is a God, if there is a Most High God whose power and kingdom and glory are greater than we could ever imagine, if He is free in His power and His might to do whatever He plans to do, however He plans to do it, then pride is the greatest insanity, and humility is our greatest sanity. Twice in this text, Nebuchadnezzar says, When I was humbled, there I, I was restored to sanity. Verses 34 and 36. The Bible says that the greatest insanity is to think that we are in charge, or to believe or live like any other human being, leader, or political power is in charge. That is insanity. A couple applications for us. This is so important for our mental health. Mental health is such a complex a thing. And so what I'm about to say is not to oversimplify it or to offer some kind of quick cure-all and fix, but learning who is in charge is essential for our mental health. And many of us are struggling with mental health during this season. The numbers are astronomically on the rise. Now, this week, one of my mentors tweeted this, and um, I just wanted to share it with you. He says, he rules the world with truth and grace. That's not just a line from a fabulous Advent hymn, Joy to the World. It is our sanity. It's our peace 
and our hope. It is our sanity to remember God is in charge even when we can't explain it, even when it doesn't seem like it. It's the source of peace, the calming of our fears, our anxiety, and the diffusion of the anger that sometimes captures us like a disease. It's also the key for us to praying sane prayers. Many of our prayers are, in essence, prayers of us saying to God, basically, give me things that will tempt me towards pride. Give me success and glory and approval and power. Friends, these are the most dangerous spiritual prayers we could ever pray. Instead of asking for these things, we are meant to pray sane prayers. God, give me whatever will teach me humility. That can be scary, but it is sane. We think about that at a personal level, and Christian friends, let's think about this at a corporate level, about what we pray for the church, about what we pray for our culture and our country and our place in it. When we learn that God is in charge, it's the end of our vanity, it is the, the key to our sanity, and lastly, it is the restoration of our humanity. Humanity, our humanity is found in humility. Humility humanizes us. Humble people then humanize other people. But pride, since that I am in control, and that the world revolves around me, it dehumanizes us and causes us to dehumanize other people. Pride places us or ourselves or our group above others above other groups, who we see then as less or lower or other. Now, there's, and there's so much going on in our culture, all around us on social media and our personal interactions right now that can only be described as savage, as beastly, attacks, demeaning, degrading the violence. Pride makes us beasts, not human beings. Christianity is more humbling than any other belief system, but it is also, when understood and lived out properly, more humanizing than any other belief system. A secular belief system says we are beasts. All other religious-based belief systems feed human pride. The good are in and the bad are out. The moral and the spiritual are in. The immoral, the unspiritual are out. The gospel says, and we've said it before, the humble are in and the proud are out. Everyone is in an equal need of Jesus. So humility means then the putting aside of our pride that creates an us versus them dynamic, that makes people into the other, that places them in labels and categories and groups to look down on them. The gospel humanizes us by destroying our pride and things we use to separate ourselves and place ourselves above other people in pride. I saw this diagnostic question. Very helpful to see if this dynamic is going on in our hearts. It's this. When you see someone doing or saying or living in a way that you say is wrong or you see is wrong, do you condemn them from a place of pride? Or do you think my heart is by nature just like theirs? It just shows up differently. Thomas Merton said, Pride makes us artificial. Humility makes us real. I would add, it also makes other people and their needs and their humanity real to us. We start seeing the needs and the humanity of others 
more than we see their sin. We start seeing the needs and the humanity of others more than we see their sin when we learn this. This is why Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar in verse 27, how do you know if you've humbled yourself? He says, separate yourself, Nebuchadnezzar, from your injustice. Show mercy to the needy. For Nebuchadnezzar, that meant him coming down to the level of the neediest and the most humble in his kingdom that he had oppressed, that he had overlooked, that he didn't even see as human. Daniel said, it'll show that you really get this lesson when you come and show mercy to them, when you see their need and their humanity. Friends, to be a Christian is to believe that our only hope in life is that the Most High God humbled himself to save us. That's our only hope. That's the only way we could be saved. A lack of humility for a sinner saved by grace, we have to see it like this, is a slap in the face of our Savior, the Most High God, the one who is in charge, who humbled himself to save us. A fellow pastor in our denomination, Scott Sauls, wrote a book recently called um, A Gentle Answer. He said this about humility, and I'm going to close with this. If Christians don't take the first step to humble ourselves and become less testy, less defensive, less easily offended, and less vindictive, when we experience milder forms of opposition and criticism than the global warm, who will? Who will take the first step? Since God took the step towards us in Christ of humbling himself, friends, we are to take the first step toward humility. Let's ask God for the grace to get this lesson and to live it out. Would you pray with me? God Almighty, Most High God, you made everything. Your power and might are above and over everything that we can see and understand. Yet, we still struggle with pride. We still want to put ourselves in your place, in charge of our lives, thinking we are in control. Forgive us. And sometimes we feel, especially now as we're looking at our world, we think other things are in control, and so we're so afraid and anxious. We repent of that too and pray that you would restore us to sanity to remember that you are most high. You are in charge and we can trust you. Help us learn that. Teach us whatever it takes to make us humble in order that we might see others who are in need of the same grace that we have been given. Thank you for that grace, Father. Get it deep, deep, deep into our core that you are in charge and you love us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.